Good market, good contractor, money in the skin in the game, money in the deal from the from the sponsor. I think you just need to have the fundamentals. It's really no different, but you really need to believe in what you're building. You need to have a kind of maybe a longer term view just in case the deal gets built and all of a sudden the market's changed and you need to hang on for a little bit longer. But make sure the folks behind it know what the heck they're doing. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you reach financial independence through real estate investing and help you build wealth on Main Street. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Nick Simpson. Today we're talking about high-rise, ground-up, multifamily development. We're talking about Nick's strategy for doing these types of deals, what he looks for. We dig into a specific example of a deal that he's finishing up now and has been in development for several years. We also talk about what to look out for if you're considering a deal like this, high points that Nick would look at if he was looking into passively investing in a high-rise multifamily development deal, and so much more knowledge around high-rise multifamily development. It's a great conversation. We don't talk about high-rise multifamily development that often because, frankly, there aren't a lot of guys like Nick out there doing these types of deals. Really excited to talk about this topic and help you learn about high-rise multifamily development today. Great conversation. You're going to learn a lot. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. To date, I have acquired, invested in, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $150 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. I really do mean that. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're building wealth on Main Street along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Nick Simpson. We're talking about high-rise multifamily ground-up development. A lot of knowledge in this one. Without any further ado, here we go. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to dig into your experience with high-rise multifamily and other things you're doing in the multifamily space. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do, what you invest in, where you come from, your story, all that great stuff? Sure. So I run Mentis Capital Partners. We are a real estate value-add and ground-up development company. We're located here in Salisbury, Maryland. Been investing in real estate a little over 10 years full-time now, starting with you know one house, then two, then you know 10, and multifamily and some commercial. And we've done quite a bit of different product types along the way. We've, we've built single family construction and learned a whole lot along, you know, along the way of what not to do and, and a lot of things to do. And that's kind of where we're focused now is, is the, the larger value add multifamily plays and the ground up developments that are in our competitive advantage. Nice. I love that. Well, I'd love to hopefully get into some of the things not to do, but first to direct our conversation to high rise ground up development. Why would, we'll start at the why and then go into like how it works and everything, but why would one invest in a ground up development as opposed to value add on an existing property? Sure. Well, I guess that that question could also be, why would you build brand new? You know, why would you build a class A? And, And I think the class A type of product type really gives you a a lower capex expenditure. You're going to attract the best tenants. You're probably going to be in the best locations. 
all of those things kind of lead to a more stabilized product, at least for the first few years, or, you know, gives you some runway in the beginning. Another reason a lot of people do that is to get a little bit of a bump in the beginning. So they might be able to build it for X, but the value of the property afterwards is Z, and that is worth quite a bit more. So there could be a, a, a play where you're getting a, a, a nice return up front, where maybe you're doing a refi, collecting all the equity back out of the deal, or at least a large chunk of the equity back out of the deal, a little bit more so than in value add, or potentially you're selling the property and moving on to the next one. Everybody's structured a little bit differently, but I, I think that's kind of the compelling reason for, for uh, class A. The other side of it is you're really building communities and you're, you know, I think it's, you're doing the right thing in a lot of, in a lot of cases, the communities that we build in want us to be there. We're, we're trying to work in conjunction with the neighborhood. We're trying to, you know, be good stewards of, of the land that we have and the projects that we're building. And I guess really the third reason is it's just a lot of fun. You know, I, you know I've always wanted to build skyscrapers. That's kind of why I, I like doing the high rise and kind of working our way towards doing that. But there's a lot of lessons that you need to know about high rise buildings. And, and I think that's why, you know, kind of starting with like a 14 and, and working our way up is, is better than just going right to a 40 or 50 story building. Okay, great. So on the back end, you touched on a couple of things uh, as far as exit strategies go. In your case, what is your target exit strategy? Do you aim to hold or sell the properties off? What do you try to do? Well, I think that's property by property. So a lot of times our class A properties are stuff that are going to be in really good shape and the investors are kind of long, longer term thinking and they want to be in and, and hold the asset just because they know that they have a, a quality product right from the get go. I'm not saying that we wouldn't sell, but for instance, like we have the, the Ross project in downtown Salisbury, that's a 14 story building. It's actually two buildings. It's 14 and 14 story building and a seven story building. That one's actually in an opportunity zone. So that's a unique structure where we're going to hold the product for 10 years. And then the the benefits of doing so is that the investors who put in opportunity zone money were able to save 10% on their debt. They were able to defer until 2026. And then all of the profit that they're getting from the, from the Ross over the next 10 years will be tax-free on the other side. So no need for a 1031 or paying taxes on the other side of that. So that's pretty compelling for holding, especially in a tertiary market, you know, a product that is a class A student housing. But, you know, if we were to go build something maybe in Austin, Texas, there, there's probably a pretty good reason for those developers to go get in and get out just because the buildings are worth so much more in that extremely, or I would say hyper growth market. You know, I think it's it's just going to be based on location and the, the capital stack behind it. Great. That's awesome. I'm very curious about I mean, so many things of this, but how you you scale up to doing high rises like that and, and what's required you know, mentally and, and just to make the move, because I, you know, from my own perspective, you know, getting up to larger apartment complexes, now everything that we buy is probably three stories at the most. We're not building 14 stories, you know, from the ground up. What is that journey like to to make the step up to those larger buildings? Because even that, I, I have a bit of maybe a limiting belief around that myself. I've never done it, but how did you, you know, push forward and, and actually get into those types of deals? Well, I think it, it does come back to, I, I want to build skyscrapers. So, you know, I think it's, <laughs> there was a internal push for me to make it happen. I, d I didn't start there. It took me every bit of, I don't know, eight, probably eight years in the business, kind of really knowing our market, having done a whole lot of other properties. And we are kind of organically got into this one. I wanted to build up on the property and we, we started doing the plans, doing the schematic drawings with the architects. And we had to acquire the land for the, the current project in three different parcels. So 
we purchased the first building and we were kind of thinking about just doing a renovation on the first building and then the building right next to us came for sale so the building got a little wider and a little taller and then the building on the other side ended up coming for sale and that was a much larger parcel of land that's when we added the second building and the, the i guess the the numbers really made a lot more sense because just like with a value add multifamily deal if you're down in the 30s 40s 50s it's hard for professional management to do to be on site and to do their job and be a compelling you know i guess number for the project same thing for for high rise really at some point it's better to go bigger and that's what we did so we were at the point where probably in the neighborhood of about 60 units for student housing we ended up doing 101 now with 101 units you're sticking two and sometimes four and in most cases four students in a unit so you're really 354 beds for our project and that is much you know a much larger scale can easily handle the professional management and that all helps you know make your your NOI on the other side compelling enough to investors to get behind the project the other side of it is you need to be you need to have a certain understanding of construction cost before you kind of get into going into high rise. I would say ballpark, you're probably talking $50 a square foot more to do a high rise than to do a low rise. And if you're doing mid rise, which is like that seven story, you're going to probably be at $25. You know, this is, this is just rough examples of numbers, but it is quite a bit more to build up and you really need to maximize the profits of the building. And that's where that, that balancing acts between how much the management's going to be, you know, how many units the management's going to be spread across and what kind of profits you're going to be able to get. The thing that you can't underwrite into the deal is the wow factors, the rooftop decks, the views, you know, just the, the height of a building creates a little bit more of an appeal. You create your own billboard in a way, you know, you're, all those little things are kind of nuanced and you're not going to get that put into your underwriting, but I think it does help us on the other side. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what is the time frame of a particular of these types of development projects? There's a lot of work on the front end. You mentioned having to buy separate par- parcels over time in this particular case, but you know, in general, how many years does it really take to get one of these things, you know, going and start, you know, getting things going up in the air? Sure. Well, let's say we're talking a building in the neighborhood of, you know, 14 to tw- maybe 14 to 30 stories tall. I, it does take a little bit longer, maybe going above that, but this is just a ballpark. You're probably in the neighborhood of 18 months to 24 months of pre-planning before you really put it, you know, before you put a shovel on the ground in a market that wants to have that project. So that's not a California, you know, trying to build something <laughs> where you're going to be you know, spending a decade. That's, that's a market that wants the development. You, you can probably do the project by right, or there's a zoning board that wants, you know, new development. So you're probably, you know, best to, to be, I, I would say, err on the, the side of caution and say it's a two-year process to get these things started. And then depending on the height of the building, you're probably another 18 months to 24 months to build it. So in the, the case of the Ross, we were, I guess before we even started, we were three years in just because we had a COVID delay and then two years to build it. So it'll be a five-year process from start to finish. And then of course, you got to stabilize the building and, and go from there. So these are not short-term investments. A lot of times though, we're not, well, all the time, we're not bringing investors in it's really just the core sponsor doing the pre-development work. So we don't bring in investors to do that, you know, high risk part of the deal where you're doing blueprints and you're going through the zoning process, trying to figure out, you know, what tenant base is going to be in the building or if there's going to be a commercial space or kind of just developing the best use for the property. All of that needs to happen, I think, for investors to be safe, kind of on the general partner side of the deal. And that way our money's in first, we're up, you know, putting the risk in first. 
And then, of course, you know, when, when you start construction, that's when you can bring in the, the limited partners. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. When you have to get the real capital, real dollars rolling in. So, well, you... real is, I guess, relative, right? I mean, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Don't forget that, you know, in a high rise development, you're probably talking well north of a million dollars in blueprints for, you know, for a building that's, let's say you're doing 100, like, like the Ross building, you're, you know, 101 units, you're definitely over a million dollars in blueprints. And then you have the cost of the land, you have carrying cost for the land if you didn't take it down in cash, you have taxes or whatever else is going to be kind of the, the long term or kind of the carrying cost as well. And and that's not feasibility studies. That's not, you know, stuff you need for your loan. That's there's a whole bunch of different things that can kind of go into that beginning part of it. So you really need to have some of that set aside or, or have access to it so that you can get your development you know, completed as fast as possible. Good point. No, you got me there. You got me there. So you mentioned about if the area wants that kind of development, which is always a, a very important factor in any new development. Now, obviously, you know your market of Salisbury, Maryland very well. I would imagine you know, you know a lot of people that are actually in the government. But in general, if you were going to try to get into a new market to do a, a ground up high rise development, how would you go about determining whether they wanted that type of development or not? And whether you were you know, in for a big hassle in that regard or if it was going to be closer to the two year, 18 months or two year. Right? This is where working with local government is really, really important. I mean, you're going to know pretty much everybody in the permitting office, the zoning boards, the city councils, county councils. You're going to need to know the temperature of those folks because it could simply just be that the permitting office goes really slow. Like, it, you know, if you go to DC, you might be looking at several months for a permit. Or in Salisbury, Maryland, if, you know, they're, they're very pro-development and much smaller. They can use that smaller size to their advantage and they can put permits out much faster. So I think that if you're looking for a new market, the, the, the starting point is looking at that local government's website and then making some phone calls, going and having some meetings with you know the, the infrastructure or permitting office just to, to figure out what incentives they have. Are they welcoming? Are they automatically telling you, hey, 10 other people have tried to do this development. You're crazy for thinking about it. They'll know a lot of that stuff. And they'll, they'll give it to you for free and, and, you know, and pretty quickly. So I think the number one place to start is with the, the local government and, you know, kind of that permitting office. You could probably talk to a lot of commercial brokers as well in the area to see if they have heard about different, you know, programs that are being established to help new development. And, you know, I think you probably need to look at state level kind of macro growth as well. You know, like is the state encouraging business? Do they seem to be more landlord friendly? All of those things will play into whether or not that's going to be a, an easier push. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how do rising interest rates in general influence or impact your your outlook on these types of new developments? Because on the back end, there's usually some kind of refinance, recapitalization once the property is built to pull money out or something like that. And, you know, cost of money is always very important, so on and so forth. So in general, how do rising interest rates impact your thoughts about, you know, new development projects? Well, I think it's going to make everybody pause. I mean, you got to really make sure that you're calculating a very, very comfortable interest reserve into the deal. So I, I, think, I think the banks are much more conservative right now than, you know, when times are good and, and money's cheap. So it, there's a lot of things that play into that, though. So right now, there's not a lot of price stability. You, you've seen inflation that is reported, you know, 10, 10%, whatever. But I, I don't think that's the case in construction. You're probably 
looking more in the 20, 25, maybe even 30% range for construction materials. And getting some price stability is probably just as important as interest rates. And we need both to kind of, you know, kind of get to a point where they're not moving anymore. That way there's, you know, that way you're, you're putting together pro formas that are not trended. You're not guessing about the future. You're really kind of getting a better understanding of what the project will look like during construction and then on the other side of it. And then I guess the best thing to do is just be conservative. Don't don't put the rose-colored glasses on right now and say, hey, interest rates down the road when we're done with construction are going to be way cheaper. And, you know, we're trying to convince ourselves that cap rates are going to be really strong. And all these things can tie into making a bad choice. So if you go into it with a really comfortable interest reserve that covers the entire project with a nice contingency on it, you have a really, really comfortable contract with your contractors or your general contractor that covers escalation or you're locking in pricing, you're just building a really large contingency, all of those things will play towards making a, a safer, you know, safer bet. But the people who are putting the projects together right now, I think are probably going to be really well positioned because the, very soon, I think, I mean, as the Fed slows things down here, the, the contractors that used to be super busy are all of a sudden going to have their pipelines shrinking. You're probably going to get a little bit better, more aggressive pricing from from more people. And I think the banks who have been kind of, you know, not lending need to get money on the street. So you might be that first project in the queue on the other side. Not to say that that's, you know, always a good thing. But it, a lot of times the people who kind of get in during the, you know, the kind of the downturns and get going, they kind of get to run the full way up the next cycle. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... You mentioned how this particular story and seventh story deal that you're working on, working through right now, finishing up right now, is student housing. How is your decision making like influenced by going after student housing versus just a regular class A, you know, development? It feels like years ago, maybe in the mid to late 20 teens, there was quite a bit of student housing development and investment going on that maybe slowed down a little bit. It got less popular. So go in that direction versus a class A development in general, just, you know, apartments. What are your thoughts, you know, comparing and contrasting those two strategies? Well, I think it really comes down to the market. You know, it's you need to just look at what the market is paying for a class A multifamily and or a class A student housing. And they're likely going to be different you're either going to be in a college town and and the students will be paying more, or you're just going to be in a large, large city where maybe you can get away with just doing the the class A multifamily. But in the case of like the Ross, the students pay more per square foot when you stick four of them in a unit than if you were to stick two people in a multifamily or three people in a multifamily and charge by the unit. So, I mean, in student housing, you could charge by the bed. So the cost per square foot is higher than that of the multifamily, and that's kind of the justification for us. That's not to say that that's the only reason you want to do, you know, multifamily versus student housing. You, you want to look at the university. You want to see if the university is growing. Is it a stable university backed by the state? Some of these smaller universities are probably, you know, kind of some of them are going to go by the wayside as they kind of come out of COVID and really have some of that debt that they're struggling to either restructure or they're having trouble with enrollment. So having a good state-backed organization or you know, just a really, really foundational institution like, you know, like the Harvards and the Yales and stuff that aren't going anywhere. So if you're looking at a quality university, you can you can feel more comfortable about your student housing. And I think the industry is really looking pretty positive. I mean, with American campus communities getting acquired 
for, you know, I think it was like $12 billion last year. You know, that was a pretty large multifamily acquisition. I think it was the largest student housing acquisition, but it's just a large acquisition in general. And, and I think it shows that the institutional guys are still really bullish on that industry. And I think everybody's bullish on class A multifamily in the right market. Yeah. And maybe as a result of, maybe the pricing was a little bit better as a result of COVID and college enrollments being maybe a little stagnant or down. I haven't kept up with the numbers, but I would imagine that fell out of favor a little bit. So maybe the pricing got a little bit better, but I don't know. So our listeners are you know mainly passive investors. Most of our listeners aren't going to go and look to start their own high-rise development company. So for those out there, maybe they're interested in learning more about investing in that industry or looking at deals or something like that. What would you suggest that if they're looking at a deal or a sponsor operator, what should they look for when evaluating a high rise deal? And this is a, this is a huge topic. We're really just looking for, for some high points here. Sure. What should they look for? Good market, good contractor, money in the skin in the game, money in the deal from the, from the sponsor. I, I think you just need to have the fundamentals. It, it's the same thing with, it, it's really no different, but you really need to believe in what you're building. You need to have a kind of maybe a longer term view just in case the deal gets built and all of a sudden the market's changed and you need to hang on for a little bit longer. Uh, but make sure the folks behind it know what the heck they're doing. Have they built high rises before? In our case, our contractor has built a ton of them. You know, they, they own their own concrete plant. They self-perform the concrete structure. So that those sort of things kind of play into the the story of, yes, we know who who's doing the deal and how much do you have in it yourself? And, you know, why should why should you put your money in if the the person who is doing the deal doesn't have any of theirs tied up as well? Awesome, awesome, makes a lot of sense. Love it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Nick, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Absolutely. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Real estate that we hold on to. So the, the deals that are, are meant to be rentals over the long term. Mm, okay. Okay. So we have the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. This one's a little bit more painful. What is the worst investment you ever made? Two, I would say, I guess the, the inverse of what I just said is the, the deals that you're looking to flip or building new houses, we ended up building a house too low. It had it got surveyed too low and make a long story short, backyard filled up like a pond and we had to move a family out of their house like within months of them moving in. We had to pick the house up, put a ton of blocks underneath it, back grade the whole property. You know, that, that one, that was a six figure ouch. But definitely it, that goes back to making sure you have good professionals with you and surveyors and and the contractors to catch all of that, you know, kind of mismanagement of, of what happened there. The other side is, you know, I think the the worst deals can unravel from the people behind them. So just, you know, I think I think partnerships are, are important and making sure that the right the right people are involved because that, that can certainly cause things to go the other way. Mm, sounds like the 
partnership-related issues or the people-related issues in that case caused that deal to go sideways. Pretty. I'm not saying that one in particular, but it can cost a lot of time to get out of partnerships if, if it's not a fit. And, you know, sometimes partnerships are good for a time and then, you know, you, you move on and, and life for each person takes a different direction. But it's good to talk about those things earlier on and, and make sure that you're really on the same sheet of music. And, you know, my, my takeaway from that is when a lot of people are looking to partner on, you know, you know p- potentially doing a lot of deals, I, I say, why don't we just JV on a few? Like, let's just do a joint venture. Let's feel each other out. And those deals take a few years. So if on the other side of that, we want to make a formal partnership, we can we can go ahead and make it a little bit more formal. But I think that most people should probably go ahead and take the, the JV route to start, in, at least in the real estate world. That, that makes a lot of sense. I think sometimes folks, especially with family members, really jump into partnerships, which is which is great and fine. And you're but you're jumping into a partnership when times are good and you're maybe on the same page. You haven't figured out your disagreements yet. They skip tend to skip maybe getting real legal agreements in place and contracts that lawyers can help you with so that when things do go sideways, you're kind of ready for that. And easing your way into that situation could be a wiser way to to go about it rather than diving in with with both feet. Yeah, the I guess the, the thing there is you don't know what you don't know yet. And y- you, you can go Google like how partnerships fall apart, but th- there's not like a, a book on this. It's like there, there's so <laughs> many little nuances of things that happen in business that it, it really, it's more of a over time type of thing. Usually it's not one big incident, like somebody stole money or something. And of course that's a bad, you know, like that's a bad thing you would need to get out of that partnership. But usually it's just people, how they work together or how fast they respond to emails or are they on vacation all the time? All those little things start to add up and, you know, you just don't know all of those potential pitfalls, I suppose, you know, just in the beginning of a partnership. And that's why I just think deal by deal, you can, you can structure it. It's more manageable. And, you know, that, that kind of makes it a little bit, a little bit easier to test out partnerships. Absolutely. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? I would say getting started early has helped a lot. I would say that you need to take care of the personal side of the house for, first. So you get you, you get your personal financial situation in order. I don't think you can worry about growing a business if you're worried about feeding yourself. So you get your personal financials in order, then you get in business for the long term and don't expect, you know, to to really be pulling away from it very quickly. I think that there's a lot of a lot of folks that like to look look super successful fast and the the longer term folks, at least the, the, I guess one of the lessons I've taken away is the people who seem to have the most, the people who have acquired the most and have these really, really successful long term businesses look like they have, you know, in a lot of cases, they don't look like they have any money at all. And <laughs> just it's just good to set yourself up for the expectation that this is not a get rich overnight type of type of thing and just build good relationships and enjoy the journey along the way. Absolutely. It's a lot of fun meeting folks at real estate networking events and some of whom are are incredibly wealthy and you'd never guess it by looking at them. They haven't changed a bit since they were, you know, just regular folks like the rest of us. And they still are. They just got more money in the bank. And Nick, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, sharing all these lessons. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Of course, our website is mentiscapitalpartners.com. You can always email me at mentiscp.com. That's nick at mentiscp.com. And of course, if you reach out, be happy to touch base and you know follow conversations at any time. 
Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're building wealth on Main Street along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.